now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode nine of the identification season, Just Science sits down with Heidi Eldridge from RTI International, along with Eric Ray and Glenn Langenberg, the co-hosts of the Double Loop podcast, to discuss the nature of the respective podcasts. The Double Loop podcast has been around for over five years now. While its origin can be traced back to a Game of Thrones conversation over dinner, it has grown into a successful podcast with a large forensic professional following. Eric Ray and Glenn Langenberg are respected voices in the forensic community and use their podcast as an opportunity to educate others about latent print topics. In this episode, Just Science sits down with Glenn and Eric to discuss history, inspiration, and the challenges facing their respective podcasts. If you're interested in hearing more about latent print topics, current events in forensic science, the newest research articles, and the analysis of notable cases from a forensic scientist perspective, click the link in the description and check out the Double Loop podcast. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Hello and welcome to the double podcast of Just Science and Double Loop. I'm John Morgan, the host of the Just Science podcast, a program of the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. On the other side of the table and the other side of the podcast universe are Eric Ray and Glenn Langenberg from the Double Loop podcast. Hello, thank you for having us on today. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. And uh, yeah, we're really happy to be here joining in and like you said, a, a double podcast of the Double Loop podcast and the Just Science podcast. For the folks listening at home, we are in in the uh, exhibit hall of the International Association for Identification. I don't know, they're kind of rebuilding the convention center, it seems, in the background. So if you hear some crash, it's just a little bit of extra construction back there as they're working on the exhibit area. With me today also is... Hi, this is Heidi Eldridge from RTI International. We've been working on Just Science for, I guess, about a year and a half now. We've been releasing episodes under the FTCOE, but Double Loop actually goes back a few more years. Yeah, we've been at it for five years now, believe it or not, and it's funny how, how we got started. Uh, Glenn was visiting in town for a case. Class, no, it's teaching for a teaching class. class. That's right, you're, uh, the one you taught with Cedric. Yes, correct, um, um, probabilities. And we're out eating dinner somewhere, and we got to talking on Game of Thrones. And if, if I recall, though, we <laughs> both had an idea that we wanted to tell the other person about. And I had mentioned something about a Game of Thrones podcast, and then we kind of both had this idea in our head and kind of looked at each other. It was just like a, wait, are you thinking what I'm thinking kind of thing? And it was, we should do a, a podcast about fingerprints. And our focus really was, at first, the practitioner. So I, uh, I bought a microphone uh, for podcasting, the USB mic for my laptop. But uh, we just took this microphone to the IAI that was just a couple months later. Sat in the convention hall, grabbed some people to sit down and talk to and interview. I believe Bill Shade and Tom Busey were our first interviews. Yep. Tom Busey was one of our first as well. (laughs) And then from there, it's a little more of a logistic thing for us with Glenn recording from Minnesota and me from Phoenix. But, uh, you know, just get on the phone and go to town and then edit it all together later in post. 
And I think for now, what we've been really focused on is looking at how we expand this because you know we've got this great practitioner base, but we also want to bring other people into the fold. And you know we're hearing from listeners that we've got students listening, we've got vendors listening, we've got other people management and people outside. We've got lay people who are listening, who are entertained just in general by some of the, the cases we're talking about. And I think we are now looking at wanting to get into more true crime while still being focused on the practitioner aspects, but bring in that research, make lay people aware of some of the, you know, things like jury issues and things that we can all all understand whether you're a lay person, a practitioner, a manager, whatever. We're really trying to open this up a little bit to grab more people. But I think we're trying to avoid some of the things we see with these podcasts that are sort of glorifying and getting involved in, oh, these crazy aspects of murder or whatever might be going on in the cases. We want the science behind it, which I think is something that you guys also can really appreciate. Yes, that's right. Uh, so we actually do case studies all the time, but the idea is that it's for forensic science professionals. Of course, forensic science students as well, right. or those who are professionals who work with forensic science. And, and I think if a layperson really wants to know the reality of it, they like the CSI shows or whatever else it is, and they really want to get into some of the more practical and the scientific aspects of it, then that's fantastic. It's great to have them along. But you know, when we're looking at a case, it's kind of fun to be thinking about about a case and seeing how it works and getting into the depth of the environment around it. But in the end, it's what does it teach us about how to do forensic science better? So how did you guys decide to, with RTI, start up a podcast? I'm assuming it doesn't have to do with Game of Thrones uh, like <laughs> ours does. I do watch Game of Thrones. The do discussion. Arya Stark's fingerprints change oh, along with her she, face? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's a good question. question. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a question for the ages. There we go. <laughs> it was really just a discussion that there are podcasts discussing Game of Thrones that you know got us into it. But for you guys, like, wh where did the inspiration come to start? Well, for, for many years, I've loved to listen to things like from the learning company and okay. all those other, you know, those courses on tape kinds of things back when they really were on tape. And when podcasts came forward here in the last 10 years, I didn't get into them at first, but then a few years ago, I started listening to a couple. There's one in particular called Econ Talk, okay. which is nerdy economics talk. Right. And I really enjoy that because what that particular podcast does is it takes, okay, here's what's being done in the literature and, and economics and just kind of lay it out there for a broader audience than somebody who might just be reading an economics journal or might be reading a textbook that's kind of in a, might be kind of erudite from that perspective. And it was very accessible, but it was also a way for getting the research out there in a way that you could not otherwise do. The other thing is I realized it's kind of like knowing the scale of the community that you're talking to. You know, it's great if somebody can come to IAI or some of the other conferences, but I think the vast majority of forensic scientists don't get to go to the conferences. Right. And it'd be great for them to be able to sit down. You know, I get to have coffee with people like Eric Ray and Glenn Langenberg. You guys got to get to know these folks because they have something to tell you. And just because you can't go to the conference doesn't mean you can't kind of listen in on some of the cool stuff you all are doing. Yeah, in fact, that was actually one of the experiences we really wanted to do was bring the conference to you, which is why we like doing them in the vendor hall uh, with the all the noise hall, yeah. going on in the background, uh, because you feel like you're there. We were hearing from listeners. I couldn't make it, but I felt like I was there in the vendor hall. And that experience, I think, is, is tangible and important to someone who appreciates what the II can deliver. So one of the questions I had was, I mean, Eric and I, you know, we're doing this as a homegrown from our house. We can say whatever we want. I can have a glass <laughs> of wine or two or three, and we can joke. And, 
I am curious, though, uh, you know, how is it, you know, working with NIJ, do they have specifications for what the content must be, or they have final say, final review? Because I mean, sometimes we interview people, and they're really nervous to come on the podcast, and their agencies are nervous to have them come on, but then we, we allow them a little preview of what it looks like, we, they get a chance to review the file, and then they get final say, and no one's ever retracted and said, no, you, we don't want that out there. Right. But I'm just curious if you have those kinds of issues, or, you know, does NIJ get in and go, all right, this one's a little too controversial. I would say NIJ has been fantastic on that. Jerry Laporte, who is the head of forensic sciences at NIJ, if anybody knows Jerry, they know that Jerry is about trying to help the forensic science community and using NIJ's resources as best as possible to do that. And he and the other folks at NIJ are some of our best listeners. And it's really <laughs> great because it, for them, it's a way also to hear more from some of the folks out there in the community as well. You know, they don't always get out of D.C. and have a chance to be able to interact with folks. And actually, most of the time when we have an issue with somebody who says, I'm nervous about this, it's with the people that we're interviewing. Right. Like you're saying, it's almost exactly the same in that regard. Now, do you have instances, because, and again, for us, I mean, we can throw our opinion on and go, we thought this paper was crap. <laughs> and we can just say, and we'll just outright and say that. And here's why we thought so. And are you even able to touch controversial subjects like that? Or do you have to be a little more diplomatic and gentle? I don't know if you know, I, I used to be a politician. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so I've learned no, how I to didn't. be, <laughs> I learned how to be a little politic. We don't shy away from anything in particular in that regard, though. I mean, I just would not myself go forward and say that research is crap or that crime laboratory isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. Earlier today, we recorded a podcast with somebody from a crime laboratory who had done a study showing that a particular technique that they were using wasn't as effective as they thought. And the question is, was it because the tool that they were using wasn't as good or because the examiners weren't using it right? And, yeah, we have to ask that question. We can't have an honest podcast unless we're able to ask that question. And that's what it comes down to is the only way to get the good information out there is to be able to ask those honest questions. But you can still right. be respectful of that. And even when we've had a few papers that we disapproved or had issues with, we still found gems in there. We still agreed exactly. with certain parts of it. I and mean, like you say, there's a, there's a diplomatic way to, to handle those things. This is an interesting community in terms of the research because it is a community that is conservative with respect to practice, right? If you are going to do something new and respond to research, you have to have it proven to you that this is going to be effective, it's going to work. So Faster, cheaper, better. <laughs> Always. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so how does your podcast try to present the research to the practitioner in that regard? Or are you agnostic? It's just like up to them to figure out in the end whether they should adopt something. I think we've become a really important tool for uh, the latent print community in a lot of ways of translating the research to the examiner. The cliff notes, uh, if you yeah. will, for the research. So, you know, we'll go through and, and you know, make up some notes and discuss uh, a bit of research and, you know, break down, here's the highlights, here's the limitations of the paper, but here's, you know, here's the good parts. Here's the part to bring up in court when you're asked this kind of question. Yeah, here's how to use this particular study, either in your reporting scheme, in your SOP, or in court when making a reference. And that's the practical hammer that we want. Because when people publish research, and not only do you want as a researcher them to read your paper, but then you want them to right. use it in some way, or employ it, or incorporate it. To us, I think SOPs, procedures, your policies, or your testimony, I think are really the most valuable way to use it. We've gotten feedback from uh, examiners saying, you know, I had a, a Daubert 
or 702 or Fry or whatever kind of hearing, and uh, I just went through and binge listened to these five or six episodes over the week leading up to it, and that got me ready to go in and testify on that case. Then we've heard from labs, I think it was the Tennessee State Crime Lab. That's what their unit does, is everyone listens to an episode of the podcast throughout the week, and then when they meet as a unit, they'll discuss the topic that, that we talked about. And then even go so far as we, now we've heard that RCMP has basically assigned the Double Loop podcast in its entirety, all 175 or so episodes, I think we're up to now, as a portion of their training material. So all of their newbies coming up through training are listening to us uh, that entire process uh, as they're going through training. So it's really great to get all that feedback and to hear and see this effect that we've been having on the, on the community. And it's even gone beyond North America to, you know, we get lots of listeners in Australia and Switzerland and really all over. Well, yeah, that's one of the things that we have found is, of course, we do a lot of webinars and we do reports and we have a website, an email, newsletter, and those kinds of things, all these other kinds of ways to share knowledge. Generally speaking, those go to a very particular set of people, right? I think that they are generally people who are already ready to hear messages about details in the research. The podcast is probably our best way of going after people who are right on that next circle of folks. And we do get a lot of, obviously, a lot of international folks, people who are just like, oh, I want to learn more about forensic science. Now, just science, I don't think gets to the level of detail that you're getting at, right? We don't go and tell you, yeah, this is good or bad research in how you might employ it in an SOP. I don't think we try to get to that level most of the time. It's meant to be more accessible to a broader array of folks in that regard. But I'm not a former practitioner, right? Heidi is. And so when Heidi speaks and she says that, yeah, this is something that's really important for somebody to do in, in practice, I'm like, I feel like she is much more qualified to do that than I possibly could be. So Heidi, you've been a practitioner. You've moved over to more of this research side, working with RTI, using our podcast and now this uh, Just Science podcast. How has that helped you from your time as an examiner to then now moving into the research side? What's your perspective on both of these podcasts? I do see them as filling different niches. I mean, I have to say, I spent a lot more time with the Double Loop podcast when I was an examiner because it's such a great counterpoint to comparing. I would sit there and I would be doing my comparisons and I'd be listening to you guys and entertained and, you know, I was able to multitask and, you know, that was all fine. Would it be fair to say while you were doing comparisons, <laughs> you were listening to us talk about comparisons? I could say exactly that. <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> It's funny going with that tagline. When we first were recording, just sitting in the convention hall, ready to start recording, I was like, we should like, you know, say a thing at the beginning. It's like the same every time. To infinity and beyond. Right, right. And I, I said, how about <laughs> while, you're, while you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. Right. And it's not the easiest thing to say, but uh, I think I've got more comfortable with it. But it's great that people even come back, like you're saying, and that they actually that's what they actually do with the podcast. So, I mean, that, that was great because it's one of those sort of listening while you're doing and, right. and it worked well. When you move into the research domain, that gets a little trickier because while I'm sitting trying to wordsmith a paper, I can't be listening to somebody else talking to my ear. <laughs> so that makes it a bit more of a challenge to at least do it at work. But I think the topics and the level of detail that you're getting into, like you said, are perfect for the practitioners. I think the Just Science has strengths in that it's so wide ranging. 
people that I've heard feedback from who say they listen to uh, Just Science podcasts, you know, they really appreciate the different kinds of topics that we're getting to and the well-known people from different fields that we're touching on and, and that sort of thing. So it gives a really nice broad perspective. There are some differences between them. First of all, we cover just every forensic discipline, right? That was actually one of my questions was, do you cover all the disciplines and have people on from all the different areas? Which, you know, there's so many now people to draw from and so many choices. Well, yeah, and even within the disciplines, we try to even go beyond forensic science to things that might be have broader interest. So we just did a season about drugs. And we did some lab science kinds of things. You know, if you're faced with these kinds of new fentanyl analogs, how do you examine those with standard LCMS and still be able to get good answers, right? We certainly get into that, but we also are looking more broadly, like, you know, what is happening with the opioid epidemic? How is right. it evolving over time? You know, what can you expect two or three years from now, potentially, is, is an interesting question for a forensic scientist. We even had some folks on from West Virginia University talk about how staffing changes are occurring because what you're seeing now in controlled substance work is an enormous explosion of number of cases. And that's actually having some very interesting effects with respect to how the staffing occurs, how outsourcing occurs. And so it's a kind of, a, it's broader. It's interesting though, because you're all also getting into methodology, right? That's what it really boils down. That's what good versus bad research is to some extent. And I think educating folks at that level is very important. I mean, I've lived in the scientific community all my life. I know you, know you all really have to a very large extent as well. Most examiners have not done that. And so it's kind of like, how do I know whether this is good research or not? Yeah, one of the, in fact, I, I recall specifically one of the papers that we had an issue with was the researchers that basically used lay people in lieu of experts and made some fairly strong statements about, well, experts will do this and experts will do that based on, you know, because it's just the human brain. And they seemed unaware of all of the other research showing, no, the expert brain appears to be quite different and right. there are all these other. And those are the kinds of things that I think are helpful for researchers to hear about that you spent years working on this research and we have mostly dismissed it fairly quickly because we already know that this is probably not translatable, or at least not at the same level. There might be some aspects or the occasional outlier, but not at the level that you're assuming is. And I think that's the kind of thing researchers need to hear. If you're going to put all the effort in, then just get some experts. And yes, it might take a little bit longer, and it might take you another six months to publish this, but it's going to be so much more helpful than what this is. Right, for that specific topic, uh, like I've said on podcasts before, if you see that, that, yes, that's what the layperson does and how they're biased, and then there's some other research available that shows that the expert, and specifically the latent print domain, is more resilient to that kind of bias, well, ask that question. Why right. are the latent print people resilient and resistant to the bias? What are they and doing different? And how can different? we increase that resilience? Exactly. Uh, that's a, just a more interesting question to proceed rather than just, oh, well, everybody's brain is just you know, going to be susceptible to this and then you know, be done with it. I think another interesting point about the research is that it's, it's not necessarily the distinction between good research and bad research so much as what it's appropriate to do with this particular piece well of research. No, it's very, very well said. Because you, you might be talking about, okay, well, let's break it down for you. If you're in court, here's how you want to talk about error rates. And that's all well and good. But there's also the other part, which is, what if you're in court? and somebody hands you this paper and they're wanting to use it a way that is not appropriate for the confines of the structure of the study. You want to be able to talk intelligently about that and say, you know, excuse me, Mr. Attorney who brought up this paper, but you're using this paper in an inappropriate way. It wasn't designed to do that. 
It's misleading. Yes. <laughs> I think we're at a time, too, right now. We're trying to bring in some new ideas in statistics. We're trying to bring in some new ideas in cognitive psychology, human factors, and we've mentioned bias, that there's a research community in each of those areas that has worked outside of forensic science for a long time, but the amount of work they've done in forensic science is quite limited. And so yes. when, somebody, when somebody comes into court and starts quoting, you know, the latest ETL drawer paper, let's just throw that out there, it goes way beyond what you can say about the practical implications of that research right now. We're really just starting on these paths, and it's very easy for people to read too much into those papers. Yeah, all right. So this is where you might get slightly controversial here. Be you can be honest. I told you. No, I, no, I will because, well, a couple of thoughts here. Uh, the first one being is one thing that is just very upsetting to me, and, and I've seen this over the years and more and more probably in most recent years, is how it seems that someone can just simply review a few papers, take a look at this profession from the outside and they immediately seem to think that they are now experts in this field and cast expert opinions where I don't think I could suddenly have law professorial opinions after reading a few law reviews. It's somewhat arrogant that this scientist who was a chemist for all these years now suddenly is able to have very strong opinions about this and not understand the nuances. On the other hand, we have done a very poor job of listening to people from the outside who had very constructive and very helpful observations, but I think that sometimes they miss the forensic science aspect, and that's something that, Heidi, you can appreciate, Lausanne has transformed how I think about forensic science, and that's, a, that. that's a philosophy that I don't think that people, even if they have grown up in science all their years, they don't have the forensic background, they interpretation aspect, they're truly missing out on an element of expertise. And it's frustrating, but at the same time, it's needed and it helps us get better, but it's just, it is a little frustrating. And I know we vent sometimes on the on air a little <laughs> bit about that. Yeah, to be specific about it. So if you're actually looking at the false positive and false negative error rates, but those calculations, again, from a more classical way of doing these kind of accuracy studies are looking at how often uh, you're able to find the answer when it's known to be either him or not him, uh, or positive or negative. And that's not what we're really, really doing in forensic science. We're willing in forensic science to sometimes do a test and not get an answer at all. And the question in forensic science is when you actually come to a conclusion, either positive or negative, how often is that right? Which is an entirely different way than how, uh, like you measure drug efficacy or, or anything else like that. It's, it's just different, but it's the forensic science way of looking at it, of accuracy, and not just the way the rest of science looks at accuracy. Yeah, and it's, for me, I, I know it hit home after reading these various reports. I mean, the NAS report, I love the 13 recommendations. I have zero issue with any recommendation of the 13 that they that they issued. My problem was when they drilled down to specific sciences where, John, and you testified around them, I testified, this is one of the first times I had a chance to really meet you. I don't know how they had the ability and time to really drill down and make those kinds of statements that were frankly unnecessary for them to do that when you had the recommendations, good recommendations. Well, yeah, I feel very strongly that there are some things that were inaccurate in the report, just plain, just plain wrong. And I, I think there, were, there are a lot of reasons for that, but the core of it in some respects is twofold. One, I think that uh, some parts of the forensics community had gotten 
to the point where they hadn't been characterizing things right. You know, the whole idea that there is no error in latent print work. And the other is the issue that we're trying to deal with now, and that is to have the folks in the community understand the science and then be able to respond more substantively to the criticism so that, oh yeah, we understand that, now we know we need to do this kind of black box study. Right, and, and that's what I, I will take appreciation that where I think PCAST and the AAAS report did drill down, did take the time to understand the nuances of the disciplines, did evaluate these studies. And we still had some you know, give and take, and we might disagree a little bit here or in part there, but compared to, again, the NAS report, where it's a superficial, not quite understanding forensic science, where I think these other reports took the time to get into forensic science deeper and have an appreciation for those disciplines. And, and I thought treated them more respectfully. A little bit better, yeah. Before we end up, I'd like to get some, some perspective maybe from you, Heidi, as well, about where you think things are going right now in terms of the research. What is a good examiner is the question in my mind, and how do we determine what a good examiner is? And I'm not sure we can necessarily answer that given how we certify today. And that seems like an important research question. This is actually a question that comes up in one of the classes I teach. And my view and what I tell the students is that there are distinct skills that you have in a practitioner laboratory. For example, there's the guy who's good with Photoshop. There is the guy who has the patience to take the photograph and maybe sit there for three hours to get the right oblique lighting on that gun to get the perfect photograph. There's the gal who is really quick at comparison and never misses anything. There's the gal who uh, is really good at testimony, that you have these different skill sets. There isn't any one skill set that makes up the practitioner today, and I don't know anyone who is an adept at all of those skill sets. There's always, everyone has their little niche, and to, together to be a good unit, you have to have all of those things coming together. Even in the comparison, you can even break it down. There's the person that's good at finding it, mm -hmm. and there's the person that's good at, at the call, the whether decision. the sufficiency measurement, uh, and those are very different skill sets. Well, and the interesting thing is that this is another area where we don't have the research. You know, if you ask anybody, especially a hiring manager, you know, what, what are you looking for when you're hiring? And they're going to rattle off all the things they think are important, and right. they're going to throw out terms like form blindness, uh, which we don't necessarily have a validated test for. And at the end of the day, you're going to ask them a few questions that HR approved, and you're going to hope you got it right. And it's a whole area that we're just starting to explore, and we're just starting to get in touch with the cognitive psychologists and the human factors people and say, hey, let's talk about personnel selection. Yeah. Let's, let's see if we can actually drill down and get this set of you know knowledge, skills, and abilities that a person would need to be successful in this job. And it's not just as easy as hiring a psychological analyst to come in and say, well, you need you know this, this level of visual acuity and this level of grayscale, because we just don't know. Yeah. And I, I think you'd miss out on those that you know, like that patient photographer. Yeah. That's not something I can do. I, that is not <laughs> in my, my nature to sit there. Like I go, yeah, that's good enough. Where I know that someone who's really skilled and loves photography will sit there shot after shot after shot and get the perfect image. I don't know how you interview for that skill set, but that person, is their value in gold is... And is that what you even want? Because, yes, we can have the most gorgeous picture, and that's great. But then you're also going to have your manager who's saying, eh, operationally, we don't need you to spend six hours on one photo. So it's always going to be a trade-off of different competing priorities. Sure. Right, right. But measuring now what makes up a good examiner is now this multifaceted question of all these different skill sets. 
Uh, you can measure it with like the proficiency test, which is just looking for just a base level of being able to look at fingerprints and in general isn't really challenging or indicative of average casework in more general terms. But then there's the uh, certification test, which is um, much more focused on the can you find it aspect of it and takes out, like you're saying, the, the photography skill, the enhancement skill, uh, all these other aspects of it and just looking at the can you find it portion, it is difficult, and it's it's a question I don't think really anyone has an answer for. It's a thing that the community's got to work towards and decide what makes a good examiner and figure out this problem so that going into court or providing the report to you know our end customers, those customers in that court can be confident in the abilities of the person that's coming in as the expert. So the interesting thing about the proficiency test industry and the sort of conundrum of what it should be versus what it is, and I think a lot of people are aware of, of the time when representative from CTS came before the National Commission and sort of said point blank, the test is easy because my customers want it to be easy and they're paying me. You know, again, with the competing priorities, we, we have a business that wants to make money and they want to sell tests and be successful, and that's completely understandable. And we have a need of a community, which is to test that people are actually competent to perform the task that they're claiming they can do, and it's a very important task. I can understand why laboratory managers don't want to pay for a test that their people can't pass, but right now we're not <laughs> measuring well how competent our people are. The fact of the matter is that the lion's share of commercially available proficiency tests right now test a single level of proficiency, and it's usually a fairly low level of proficiency. We usually don't have much of a range of substrate types, of difficulty levels, of orientations, of anatomical sources. There are years when it, I've quite literally finished the test before I finished printing it out. You know, it took longer to print it than it took to do it. That's concerning to me, and I understand the commercial pressures, but I think that if we as a discipline are serious about improving and serious about measuring our abilities, we have to do better in that area. On the flip side, we have the certification test, and I still have never heard a definitive answer to the question, what are we certifying? Are we certifying basic competence? Are we certifying excellence? What is it that this test is supposed to demonstrate? For the longest time with the legacy test, you know, we had these, these awful marks that we didn't even know ground truth. They were taken from casework. So <laughs> the state of it today is better than it was, but I still wouldn't call it representative of any particular level of something that has been measured and validated and is telling us something useful. So I think that that's a failure on the part of the discipline at both levels. So I take your point, too, about the validation of these tests. But empirically, one thing in that you were there, and we saw this in China, we saw the how they conduct their proficiency tests, and they were fairly amazing. Mm -hmm. We had the opportunity to see that they would give these standard marks and sets of prints, very similar to any kind of proficiency test. But what was more important was sort of a grade school answer booklet, you know, that you might see in one of your essay tests, where the analyst was required to have an analysis and a comparison and an evaluation, show the basis for their conclusions, and they were getting feedback from the proficiency provider on, well, okay, so yes, it, this is ground truth, they're from the same source, but you've marked these features here. We disagree that maybe should have gone into this area. Uh, consensus features show that no other examiners went and selected those. You talked about this kind of distortion, but we made this print, so we know this distortion didn't exist. It was very good feedback and on 
all levels of the examination process and their basis as well. And that was something I was extremely impressed about. And I think that gets closer towards uh, moving that ball towards the, the goal line. I agree. And I think it's a big part that's missing from our tests. Uh, the feedback is wonderful, but even the requirement to document it in the first place. Good point. How, yeah. how do I know Good how point. you reached your conclusion when you haven't told me a thing about it? And that's the thing to, to get to is right now, the goal of the quality assurance departments that are buying the tests is I want everybody to pass the test. So that's what the test makers are going to provide to them. And uh, so long as quality assurance departments are only going to pass people that get just 100% on the ground source of the comparisons, then that's the test that's going to be provided. And then it can't be any more difficult than it already is because then everybody would start failing the test. And let's point out that the few years in, let's say, 1995 and in 2010, when there were serious issues, yep. either the identical twin print that had right. a high erroneous identification rate of 22%, or in 2010, at least 20% of the providers missed a potential identification, the erroneous exclusion. What do we do as a test? We sort of threw it out, we Throughout dismissed that, it, that as that opposed one. to address. That was an aberration. It's pointing out <laughs> a real serious problem that needs to be addressed. It was right. actually doing what it was supposed to and do. And going in and actually having this written out uh, analysis uh, and demonstrating the basis for the conclusion, even if there's some sort of issue, as long as it's, you know, here's the tough one. Okay, you didn't get the right answer. You said inconclusive, whatever. But you showed that you are a competent examiner in these other aspects, then you can still pass the test. Right. Uh, but it's just expanding beyond just the... Yes, no. It's expanding beyond a math test and going more into like an English test or a history <laughs> test. Yeah. Well, we're having a test now because we're getting the uh, evil eye from the exhibitor, <laughs> folks. We're getting the boot. Uh, do appreciate the chance to be on Double Loop. Thank you also, Heidi, for being on both programs. Thank you. And to have you all on Just Science. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you very much. We really appreciate the opportunity. We would encourage listeners, if they're interested in uh, listening to the Double Loop podcast, that they go to SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, where you can download the Double Loop podcast for free. And also they can check out us on Twitter at Double Loop Pod. Uh, if they have questions for Eric and I, they can email us at glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com. Great job, Glenn. Uh, I usually do that part, but uh, you, you sounded great there. Go I ahead. Did. And if listeners to the Double Loop podcast want to listen to Just Science, where can they find that? Well, we are also on all of those major podcast media, so they can find Just Science on, on iTunes or on SoundCloud and Stitcher too, right? And so they can also look on the Forensic COE website, ForensicCOE.org. Not only do we have the podcast there, but we have some pages for each podcast with descriptions and links. And we'll make sure to link from our Just Science page back to Double Loop so people can catch up with, uh, with Double Loop from us. And we certainly encourage folks to give both podcasts lots of big thumbs up. We find that helps an awful lot with five respect to ratings. getting... That's right, <laughs> lots of five stars. And uh, get those ratings up, attracting more folks into the, uh, the universe of podcasting and forensic science. This episode concludes our identification season. Stay tuned for a special release in April in honor of Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Please visit ForensicCOE.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to learn more about the FTCOE's other resources and to stay up to date on the latest releases from Just Science. 
Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.